So it's been about 2,000 years and people have been celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. Most people today know it is Christmas. Many Christians, though, historically have made it a four-week celebration that is called Advent. The word Advent, which means arrival. And so it is celebrating the Advent, the arrival of Jesus. The idea is that during the first four weeks of December, this anticipation builds. You're thinking about Christmas Day, you're looking forward to Christmas Day, that one day of great celebration, but the anticipation builds for four weeks. And that is meant to remember the centuries of anticipation before the birth of Jesus. So it's sort of reenacting that anticipation. So that's been our tradition here at Veritas for a long time. We take the four Sundays beginning last Sunday this year, but the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, and we devote them to Advent using the uh, traditional themes of hope and then love and then joy and then peace, and it culminates with a Christmas Eve service. So we're glad you're here today. I hope you'll all be here in the weeks to come and join us on Christmas Eve at 6.30 and we can celebrate Advent together. Uh, there's an Advent guide that is available on our website that has some devotionals and some readings and songs that you can sing. Uh, you can find that on the resources page of our website, so we would encourage you to go there and find that. Our text today, as you know, it is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Of the four gospel accounts, so you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew and Luke, they tell the Christmas story. And each of them tells the story Uniquely, For example, as we will see today, Matthew alone, he tells part of the story through the eyes of Joseph, which is fascinating for me personally because I've always been intrigued by Joseph. The Bible doesn't have a lot to say about Joseph, and so it makes, makes me curious. He was father to the Son of God as a dad that's intriguing to say the least. Uh, he was the adoptive father of Jesus, which I admire. He was a carpenter. I enjoy carpentry. I think based on the few mentions that there are of Joseph in the Gospel accounts that he was a man who was well known for his godliness. So we get to see just a, a glimpse of this Christmas story from the perspective of Joseph. In Matthew chapter 1, we're going to read how God changed Joseph's mind. That's what's going to happen in these verses today. He was ready, Joseph was ready to quietly divorce his pregnant fiancée. 
But as you know, he ended up marrying her and then adopting her child. And as we're going to see, what changed Joseph's mind was the realization that God's biggest promises were about to be fulfilled. His mind was changed. He had one course, and he completely changes course because he comes to the realization that God's greatest promises were on the verge of being fulfilled. God's love for His people was about to be demonstrated. It was about to be displayed. It was about to be shown. So we're going to study this today and see how Joseph's mind was changed by ultimately the love of God. And we're going to consider how the love of God changes us as well. But before we get into it, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege that it is to gather together as your family and to worship you week in and week out. And now we are thankful for this time to open up your word together and to hear from you. Ultimately, God, not to hear from me, but to hear from you. So help me to be faithful to your word and change our hearts and minds today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. If you're using one of uh, the church Bibles that you can find in the seat back in front of you, we're on page 757 today. There's going to be two steps in the sermon today. We're going to move through this text by way of two steps. In step number one, we're going to walk through the text. This is a narrative, which means that it is telling a story. And so we're going to read these few verses slowly, making sure that we understand what actually happened. So that's step one. We're just going to walk through the text. And then step two, we're going to go back And we're going to take a closer look at two verses. And those verses are 20 and 21. And we're going to take a closer look at those verses because they represent a dramatic turning point in the story. In verses 1 through 17, so we know where we're at. Here's the context. Matthew began his account of the gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. And he takes the genealogy of Jesus and he goes it all the way back to Abraham. And he does that to root this story that he's about to tell in history. And Matthew does that because he has a very skeptical Jewish audience in mind. That's who he's writing to. And so he wants to root what he's going to say Because he's going to say some unbelievable things, right? He's going to tell an amazing story that somebody might hear and easily dismiss as some sort of fairy tale. 
So he begins by rooting it in history. Now, this is a historical story that I'm going to tell you. And that's what he does in the first 17 verses. And then next, and here's where we are in verse 18, he gets right to his account of the birth of the hero of his story, who is Jesus. So let's walk through, step one, let's walk through the story together, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And now Matthew tells the story. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So Matthew's account, it begins with the conception of a child. She, that is Mary, was found to be with child. But this was, to say the least, an unusual, an unusual conception. Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. In other words, this child that Mary was carrying was not the result of her relationship with another man. The child that Mary was carrying was the result of the Holy Spirit. This child who had been conceived in her womb was from the Holy Spirit, which completely defies our understanding. This is, this is beyond our understanding. The way it was put to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 35, is that the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Which doesn't get us any further in understanding exactly how this works, right? It is beyond our understanding. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, Mary. This child will be conceived in you, and this child will be from the Holy Spirit. Okay, two things right here. There are two things about the beginnings of this child. Number one, this was the miraculous conception. Not just a miraculous conception, because there's actually a lot of miraculous conceptions when you read the Bible. Think of the Old Testament and think of women like Sarah and Hannah and Elizabeth. These were women who were barren. They were not supposed to be able to have children, and yet God gave them children. Those were miraculous conceptions, but nothing, nothing compares to this. Unlike every other conception in the Bible and in the world, this child would have no earthly biological father. So this is the miraculous conception. Here's what G.I. Packer has to say about it. God became man 
the divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie down and stare and wiggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the Incarnation. It's really important to slow down at Christmas and think about what actually happened. Because you know how it goes when you, when you say these things over and over again and you've believed these things for so long and you sing about them over and over again you can sort of lose touch with the miraculous nature of it. This was the miraculous conception. Now the second thing that's here about the beginnings of this child is not only was his conception miraculous, it was untimely. Look at the text with me. We're told at the beginning of verse 18 that Mary became pregnant while she was betrothed to Joseph. Or we might say engaged to Joseph. So they were pledged to be married to one another, but they were not yet married. She was a single woman. They were not yet a family. And here she is with child. That's shocking. This was an untimely conception. This is not what you would expect. Now, betrothal and engagement, they are similar but different. Today, if a couple is engaged and then they break off the engagement, there is no legal consequence. But a betrothal in Mary and Joseph's day, it actually involved a legally binding contract. And so the only way out of a betrothal was the same as a way out of marriage. It would require a divorce. Now that helps us make sense of our next verse. Verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So Joseph finds out that his fiance, the woman to whom he is pledged to be married, is pregnant. And he knows that he is not the father. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. He loves Mary. He has plans to marry her and to begin a family with her. He has committed himself to her. And while they are preparing for their marriage and preparing for their wedding day, Joseph finds out that she is pregnant with someone else's child. Wouldn't that be devastating? 
it'd be devastating for Joseph. We're not told how Joseph found out, but by this point we know that Mary had been visited by an angel, and she had been told how and why she was pregnant. She likely passed that on. She passed that information on to Joseph along with the explanation. You can imagine that conversation. Joseph, I'm pregnant. He knows he's not the father. And then she explains to him what has happened. It's what we read earlier. The power of the Most High has overshadowed me. How would you have responded? Of course, Joseph did not believe her. Of course he did not believe her. He had no category in his mind, neither do you for a pregnant virgin. And so the only explanation was adultery. That was the only explanation. This woman who he loved and had committed his life to, she had already been unfaithful to him. So at that point in this culture, Joseph could have called her out on her adultery and he actually had legal grounds to press charges and that would have gone very badly for Mary. But we're told that he was a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. And so with a broken heart, he settled on a merciful solution to resolve this situation discreetly. And he made up his mind to, we're told, divorce her quietly. So that is Joseph's plan. He plans to divorce Mary and walk away from her and this child. Now, if you were to stop right there and you were to jump ahead into the middle of chapter 2, you'll find this little family. And the little family is Joseph and Mary and this baby Jesus. And Joseph and Mary are married to one another. And Joseph is courageously listening to God and leading and protecting his family all over Asia and Africa. And so if you were to just jump ahead, understanding where Joseph's at now, and see where he's at in the middle of chapter 2, you're asking, what happened? So one minute, Joseph is planning to call off the marriage and send Mary and her unborn child away, understandably, and then the very next minute he is marrying her, he is taking care of her during her pregnancy, and then he is adopting and fathering her child. So what happened? Why the change of direction? What happened between verse 19, divorce, and the middle of chapter 2, marriage and adoption 
So let's read our next verses, 20 and 21. But as he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is the turning point. This changes Joseph's mind. Because skip down to verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did. As the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So what happened? Well, verses 20 and 21 happened. That is what changed his mind. So let's go back. Here's step two in this sermon now. Let's take a closer look at verses 20 and 21. Joseph receives here two instructions from God. Do you see those instructions? There are two of them in these two verses. First, Mary, Mary. Take Mary as your wife. Do not be afraid to do that. Let go of your fear and take Mary as your wife. Let go of your fear of people's disapproval. Let go of your fear of judgment or criticism or embarrassment. Fear not, the angel said. And the instruction is, take this woman to be your wife. There's a second instruction. And the second instruction is, adopt her child and name him Jesus. Now, the reason I say adopt, because you're reading this and saying, well, that word is not in the text. And that's true, but God tells Joseph to name this child, which was the exclusive right of the father. So he's telling Joseph, I want you to be a father to this child. And I want you to name him Jesus. Now the angel could have just commanded Joseph. You're an angel, you're from God. Here's what you have to do. Marry this woman and adopt this child. Name him Jesus. He didn't have to give any explanation. He didn't have to give any reason, but he did. The angel, on behalf of God, gives two reasons to help Jesus along. And that's why you see the word for, F-O-R, twice in these verses. This child, who is from the Holy Spirit, God calls Joseph to love him and care for him, to raise him 
to marry his wife, and he gives him two reasons. Here's reason number one. Look at it with me. The first instruction, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. There's the instruction, and here's a reason. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Well, that means at least two things. Number one, that means, Joseph, Mary has not been unfaithful. What a relief to Joseph. This child is not from another man. This child is what she told you is true, is from the Holy Spirit. This woman you love and feared had been unfaithful to you. She has not been unfaithful. That also means, though, it also means that this child is sent to fulfill God's promises. And then verse 23 quotes the Old Testament, Isaiah 7.14. So this child is a fulfillment of that promise. Isaiah 7.14 reads, The Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. Light bulbs for Joseph. That's what's happening here. God's greatest promises are about to be fulfilled. So do not fear, Joseph to take Mary as your wife. Then he gives a reason for his second instruction. Remember the command. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Love this child. Take this child as your own. Name him Jesus. And here is why you are to name him Jesus. Name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. See, that name has a meaning. We have all different reasons for why we choose the names we do for our kids. But in this day... The name that you chose for your kid was very important. And the name you chose was important because that name would have a meaning. And you would be assigning that meaning to this child. So Jesus is how we pronounce his name. And Jesus is the translation of the Greek. The way it would have sounded to Joseph was Isus. Isus. And Isus was a Greek pronunciation of a Hebrew name, which was Yeshua. And Yeshua was a compound name. It was two words, Yehovah, the Lord, and Yasha, saves. So you have two words in the Hebrew that mean the Lord saves. You put them together in the Hebrew, it's Yeshua. You say that in Greek, it's Isus. You say that in English, and it's Jesus. So the angel tells Joseph, this is what I want you, this is what God wants you to name this child. Now here's the thing. 
That was not an unusual thing to tell someone. Because the name Esus was a very common name. In fact, one historian gauges that about every sixth male was named Esus in that day. When I was a kid, the name was Michael. Right? Like every other person I knew, their name was Michael. Today, it's Jackson. I have a Jackson. There's a couple other Jacksons here. In that day, it was Esus. And the reason the people, the Jews, would name their child Esus is because it was an expression of hope that at some point, God was going to fulfill His promise to save His people. So it was a very meaningful name. And it was looking forward to God fulfilling His promise to save His people. And so the name of Jesus was a way of saying, He is coming. The Messiah, the promised rescuer, promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and throughout history we've learned more and more and more about him and who he will be but he's not here yet he hadn't come so they would name a child Esus meaning he is coming the redeemer is coming but you see when Joseph was called to take up that same name and give it to his child. It wasn't a way of saying, the Redeemer is coming. It was, the Redeemer is here. Because did you hear the reason he gave? It wasn't name your son Esus because the rescuer who will save his people is coming. We're anticipating that and waiting for that and looking forward to that. No, he said, call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Aren't you glad God didn't tell Joseph to name this child judge? Executioner? The Lord saves will be his name. Joseph was no dummy. He was a godly, upright man. That means he knew the scriptures. He knew what was going on. The promised rescuer was in his wife's womb. And he was going to be his father. He didn't know what the life of his son was going to involve, of course. He couldn't do it. But he knew that the love of God for his people was about to be made manifest. God's greatest promises were about to be fulfilled. He knew scriptures like Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He knew that prophecy. He knew that prediction that someday a child would be born. He would be Emmanuel. He would be God with us and he would save his people. And now here he is. His mind is changed. His course is redirected because he learns that this child who is in his soon-to-be wife's womb is that child. This is the Messiah, the promised rescuer. So Joseph was learning that God's love had come down. That the promise was being fulfilled. Here's the reality of what is happening in Matthew chapter 1. 1 John 4 9 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. That's written later. And it's looking back at what begins right here in Matthew chapter 1. God was sending His Son into the world that we may live through Him, that we may be forgiven of our sin and be reconciled to God forever. God was sending His Son into the world. And what does John say about that act of God sending His Son into the world? In that, the love of God was made manifest among us. The Christmas story is a story of love. How great is the Father's love for us that He would send and give up His only Son for us. I don't know how much you think about God's love. There's certainly wrong ways to think about God's love. But that shouldn't keep us from thinking about the right ways to think about God's love. If you really do a study on the love of God in the Bible, you find out that it's complex. God's love is complex, just like your love is complex. There is, for example, the Trinitarian love of God. The Trinitarian love of God is the love that has been given and received between God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for all of eternity. And so God has been loving and God has been being loved long before we ever showed up on the map. It's not like God needed to create us so He had someone to love. So that's 
in the Bible. It is the Trinitarian love of God. There is also the providential love of God. Psalm 145. This is God's love for all people through which He is good to all people. You don't have to love God. You don't have to be a Christian to still receive a degree of the love of God. It's not like the sun only shines on His people. It's not like rain only waters the crops of His people. It's not like only His people have a degree of happiness in this life. There is the providential love of God that is described in the Bible. And then... There is the special love of God. There is God's love for His people. He describes them as the apple of His eye. And this special love of God for His people is what is being expressed here in our text today. It's this love. The love of God for His people is demonstrated through the advent that is the arrival and the giving up of his son to die in their place that they may be reconciled to him so it is this realization for Joseph that this love of God had come down that God's greatest promises were being fulfilled that changed him. Changed his heart. Changed his mind. So the question I found myself asking, the application that I found as I read this this week is, has God's love changed me? Do you know God's love? That would be an important first question. I hope all of you know what it's like to be loved. I hope you know what it's like to be loved by uh, a mom and a dad, or a child, the brother, sister friend it's sweet isn't it it's encouraging it is good to know the love of someone else but you know it doesn't even compare To the love of God. The love of God that is full, that is as kind and good and merciful and gracious as love could possibly be, and love that is unconditional that isn't dependent on 
you and your deeds and your your mood and your attitude. The idea that God knows you more than anyone else could ever possibly know you and He loves you. When our fear is that the more someone knows me, my fear is that the less they're going to love me. But God knows you and He loves you and He loves you as much right now as He could ever possibly love you because He loves you as much as is possible. Charles Spurgeon said, If a man could know that he was loved by all his fellow man, if he could have it for certain that he was loved by all the angels even, yet these were but so many drops. And all put together could not compare with the ocean contained in the fact that God loves us. So do you know God's love? You can only know God's love through Jesus. You can only know God's love by hearing the good news of His love for you that Jesus was sent and He came and lived and suffered and died and rose from the dead in your place because of His great love for you that you could be forgiven of your sin and reconciled to God. That is Romans 5.8. That is the great demonstration display of God's love for you. And so to know that and to believe that is what the Bible calls faith. It is to take hold of that and to believe it and to trust in that. And that is what it means to know the love of God. And then as a Christian, to read the Word. To pray to remind yourself and to remind others of this love of God over and over again. And when you do, does it change you? Does it change your love for God? And does it change your love for others? Do you love God more fully? as you think about His great love for you? And do you love others more fully because of His great love for you? So we are remembering this Advent that with the arrival of Jesus really is the arrival of love. Love is defined by who Jesus is and what He has done. May we take hold of that message, take hold of that love, and love God. Love others, as He's commanded us to do. So that brings us to the end of this sermon. It brings us to our time of communion, and it brings us to our time when I forget every week to grab a communion packet, so feeling embarrassed, I'll ask again. Thank you, Tom. Did you have a backup? <laughs> Did you do that because you knew I was going to forget? Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're invited to eat this bread and drink this cup with us today if you are a Christian. You've committed yourself to Christ and his people. You're committed to this church or a, another church that faithfully preaches the same gospel that you heard here today. So let's remember and celebrate together. Let's, let's put on this display of our Savior's great love for us. Let's see it. Let's taste it. So first, let's take the bread. This represents the body of Christ. Will you take this and eat it with me? And this cup, which represents the blood of Christ, take this and drink with me. Will you please stand again? <clears throat> 